Welcome to the NIHR Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world. When I've spoken before to clinical academics and academics that come from a clinical background, what's clear is that there isn't a fixed and clearly defined career path for everybody. Everyone has their own story and was drawn to academia for different reasons. But there is a clear difference between people working as clinical academics and academics whose basis of their works lies within healthcare. Typically, a clinical academic will be part-funded to enable them to split their time between their clinical work and their research. But what about those who've broken away to study full-time, but who need to maintain their clinical skills? How do they maintain their clinical skills? And, and particularly if their clinical skills are necessary to the, to the academic work that they're undertaking. And particularly, again, if they intend to return to practice at some point in the future, which I, I think as we move on in the conversation, we'll pick up with Daniel. So please, before we get started, can I ask you all to uh, introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit how you came to be where you are now? Come to you first, Julieta. So I am Julieta Camino. I am an occupational therapist by background. I graduated as an OT in Buenos Aires, in Argentina, where I come from. Uh, I worked as a clinician for many years before moving into my academic uh, career now. So I work at least for 10 years uh, with people with dementia, with family carers, with people with traumatic brain injury. And when I moved to the UK, I started again working as a clinician, but I've always been interested in the research area. So I moved towards a PhD um, where I'm working now, uh, uh, trying to find out what are the factors that might explain uh, the ability to perform activities in people with dementia. So that's where I'm coming from at the moment. Fantastic. Uh, Daniel. I'm Daniel Jimenez. I'm from Chile. I was trained as a medical doctor and neurologist in Santiago, Chile. And after being working as a general neurologist for a couple of years, I started my clinical um, academic career in dementia and cognitive neurology. And in 2016, I decided to come to London to join the first version of the Master in Dementia here in UCL. And one good thing of that master was that they combined um, of course, lectures and seminars, but also some clinical activities like clinical meetings, reunions, um, rounds. And I had the chance to meet Professor Nick Fox, Professor Jason Warren. And finally, I managed to stay longer at the Dementia Research Center uh, at UCL, um, basically spending most of my, my time in clinical research. And that's where we are now. Fantastic. Thank you. And uh, Ida? I'm Ida Suarez-Gonzalez, and I'm a clinical neuropsychologist by background, and now I'm a senior researcher um, here uh, at UCL in the Dementia Research Center. And um, the first time that I came to Queen Square was eight years ago. I was still a clinician in Seville, and uh, I was working in a neurology department in the dementia unit, and I decided to come to Queen Square for six months just to have an international experience and learn about how other people were practicing neuropsychology in other places. And during the six months that I spent here in the neuropsychology department here uh, at the National Hospital, I got in touch with Sebastian Crutch. 
um, from the Dementia Research Center because we had a lot of uh, common uh, interests. Uh, I had a long, a big cohort of people with posterior cortical atrophy and other uh, types of uh, atypical Alzheimer's disease and also frontotemporal dementia. And he was very interested in that line of research. We thought that we could do some collaboration. So when I went back to Spain, we continued a professional relationship and we continued doing things together. And a year later, they opened a position for a postdoc to join. I was very interested in the position and I came here and I stayed. Well, can, can I come back to you first then? So can you tell us about the research you're doing now? Is there a clinical element to that? Um, yes, there is. Um, I'm focused at the moment on conducting research in um, um, strategies that may be helpful to support people to live better with the symptoms of dementia. In, in the DRC, we are um, highly specialized in uh, atypical forms of dementia and typical Alzheimer's disease and frontotemporal dementia, low prevalent dementias. So this is my research and it uh, sits in the um, uh, interface between um, uh, research and clinical practice. So it is very translational research that I'm conducting. So my clinical skills, I think that are very valuable to me for me to have an overview and, and a vision of how the things that the experiments and things that we develop in the labs can be translated into cl real clinical practice. So that's quite interesting then. So, so your kind of clinical work moves on slightly in so much as you're not just, you're not doing the usual clinical practice that you might see up and down the country provided by your peers in district general hospitals elsewhere, or um, you're doing slightly different work here, which is embedding research as part of your job to test out different ways to provide that provision of care. Um, yes, but it is it is still 100% uh, research, so I don't take it to clinic direct, directly. I'm not running a clinic, um, but um, because it is so close to delivering care, Actually, what we are doing is, is the, the, at the very moment, um, I'm working in this um, work stream five of the uh, rare dementia support impact that you you've, uh, oh, yeah, feature exactly. Ago, yeah. So, um, and my job is developing an online intervention to support people recently diagnosed with posterior cortical atrophy, primary progressive aphasia, or behavioral variant FTD. So a post-diagnostic package brings is evidence-based, of course, so you need to bring all the evidence around the strategies and the interventions that have, have proved useful in these populations. But the, the bridging the gap between evidence-based mm, experimental things to clinical practice, that is where I work. But I don't really... Yeah, deliver care. But it, obviously it's important then that you're maintaining, you know, your awareness of what is going on elsewhere and, and, and how translatable what you're doing is to normal practice happening yeah. with, you know, uh, non-academic clinicians yeah. elsewhere in the country. Thank you, uh, Ida. Uh, Julieta, can I come back to uh, you? So, so do you still do... Is, is there a clinical element to your research? What's your research focused on? Well, I think there's a, a, a big clinical element to my research. I am uh, focusing on the people with dementia's performance of daily tasks. So I am uh, running experimental study, very practical things. I'm testing people on how well they are doing some activities and what are the external factors that might 
might be affecting their performance. So I'm looking at the environment, I'm looking at the caregiver management style. And if you, if I think in my clinical practice, when I used to be an OT and I practiced uh, until very much a couple of years ago, the environment was one of the first things that I was looking at as an OT when I visited people with dementia, the care support as well. So I think uh, what I'm doing at the moment, it really needs me to be aware of what's going on there, what are the is doing in the dementia field in this country and internationally so I, I really need to be very much involved in what's going on out there so I think at, at the end of the, the journey of my PhD I, I really hope to change uh, parameters in within the environmental approach and within the carers approach when they help people with dementia so I really hope to, to be changing clinical practice in future so yeah yes. and, and that, I mean we don't obviously it's not the focus of today's topic but I I think we've definitely talked before about the about how you might translate the mm. outcomes of your PhD into real practice, you know, that mm. kind of realizing the impact and implementing those benefits. And I think in the practical work um, you're both doing in that cl- clinical setting now, there's yeah. there's a, a good basis for the need. It's not just your re- your work shouldn't just result in a paper that gets published in a journal and gets forgotten. Otherwise, that would be a complete yeah waste wouldn't it i mean you need to then create those tools and translate that into practice that makes lives of people actually better which i think is often not not necessarily realized as particularly as quickly as you like i know alzheimer's society and things like that are are very key and funders as well like ao uk are keen on seeing that translate through um so i suppose in that basis having your foundation in that clinical setting is really essential to your jobs otherwise you don't know how realistic what your your research could be delivered daniel can i come to you for the the same question really um if you could tell us about your research and what how there is a clinical element to that yes well i'm a clinical neurologist so my main interest is clinical research rather than pure um, neuroscience and how we trans- transfer this knowledge to clinical practice um, following the IDES idea about this gap between clinicians and neuroscientists. And I've had the chance to join different research projects here at um, the Dementia Research Center, looking at atypical forms of Alzheimer's disease or familial forms of Alzheimer's disease. And um, in those projects, I'm able to assess patients with different clinical presentations. And that's my main interest, how these different presentations beyond memory difficulties correlate with um, some functional or structural brain markers. That's my main interest. That's fascinating. Thank you. Um, Ida, coming back to you again. How? So we're talking about the work you're doing now, which obviously has a foundation in your clinical um, background but isn't clinical in itself how have you how have you worked to maintain your clinical skills and is is this something that's self-driven or or does your institution because there's a professional registration for your field um how, how do you need to maintain that how is that supported Yes, that's right. I, I do need to maintain my clinical skills if I want to continue being registered and meeting the standards. And, and, and this is a challenge. And I think it is a challenge for many clinicians conducting uh, research or, or mainly research. So I'm not aware of um, a formal scheme within the institution to support um, neuropsychologists as me to keep their clinical skills up to date. 
I did receive support from my line manager in the past. So, for instance, something that I did a few years ago was I, I had an um, honorary contract with the neuropsychology department, and I, I, I had this arrangement with them, and I will pop in a few days per month, and I will, I will see patients uh, there. And nowadays, I'm not doing that anymore. What I'm doing now is trying to embed a bit of uh, private practice, um, of, of course, outside working hours. So this is something that you need to plan because you need to add more hours of work to your um, to your week. Your own time. I mean, as much as that's, I mean, you don't do that for free, right? That's not voluntary work. So you do get paid for it, but you're having to do that on your own time. And Yeah, exactly. And... Uh, and by doing that, it enables you to potentially return to practice. Yes, but this is a way of doing it, and it is good enough. So I think it is something that I, I would advise to other people to do. I mean, if you were an employee in a company, um, you have an appraisal every year, and you go through that part of the appraisal form that says, oh, what training do you need? What things do you need? And you'd be listing out there things like, oh, I'd like to go on this course, and I need that one, and this would be good to enable me to continue to do my job as well as I can. Do you, I mean, obviously you've both finished your PhDs, but uh, uh, do you have the same conversation, Julieta, with your supervisor? Yeah, sorry, I, I still haven't finished my PhD. No, you've no, not finished no, yours no. Yet. Yeah, so I'm in my third year now, but um, I think it, it will be very much the case of, of, of my next job to check whether I would need to have that put on my appraisal to see whether I would need more support for my clinical skills. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, I think it's it's... Um, you can pursue also a career which is combined with clinical elements and research as well. So the worlds are not that split apart. Uh, but it's, I think it's something at the moment very personal, I, I have to say. Yeah, yeah, you have to drive. I mean, that's what I'm saying. I think the, the clinical academic role is fairly well defined and the NIHR is great at supporting that. And the organisations are where they give you time off to study. But I think... You know, it's harder when you you leave that full time healthcare setting to study academia to maintain that clinical skill. So how how do you how do you approach that, Daniel? I mean, is this something you because you're a neurologist? Um, when a, uh, you came to the UK to study, remained as a clinical academic. Do you intend to return to practice in Chile? Well, yes. As I was explaining, I I got my qualification in Chile, and I joined the University of Chile before coming here, so I have, basically, that's my, my main employer. And when I came here, I got the scholarship from the Chilean government to do my master and then to stay here for a while, getting more clinical and research experience. And this is a kind of deal with the, my Chilean employers um, because they can fund me for staying here longer, but then I have to go back and return um, in some way. And there's an expectation you there's will return an expectation, and yes. fulfill your commitments to the country. Yes. So this year I'm going back to Chile and I'm setting up a cognitive disorders clinic there to see these patients with these atypical forms of dementia and hopefully start collaborating with research projects with UCL and other centres. Yeah. So when you return to Chile uh, to work as a neurologist, having had... Obviously, you're still in that environment working with neurologists now, but not practicing yourself. Do will you have to do some extra training when you return, or 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 will the work here you've done be sufficient to allow you to just return straight back to the kind of jobbing frontline clinical work you'll be doing in Chile? 
Yes, well, here I can't be autonomous. I can be an independent neurologist. But um, I've been working in the research content with patients and alongside consultants, and I've kept um, a kind of clinical uh, work during these years. And when I go back to Chile, I'll be spending most of my time in cognitive neurology and dementia and trying to set up this um, center to do clinical research in this field. So probably with this experience is a good start to go back to a clinical research work in Chile. Fantastic. So, I mean, we talked, this podcast was supposed to be talking about both your clinical skills, which we've talked about, and, and I'm going to try and recap here just for the for my own uh, understanding. So, Ida, you, you kind of maintain your clinical skills, so you are working, your clinical skills are useful to the role you're fulfilling, although you're not working clinically, um, but you're having to work outside of your practice, you have a outside of your day job to do that and you have professional registration to maintain but the institution doesn't have a formal mechanism by to support you to maintain that that registration i wonder maybe that's a, a discussion topic for our for our listeners to to message us if they find that that's different where they work if you drop us a message on twitter we're at dem underscore researcher and we use the hashtag ECR dementia I'd be interested to know from from everybody else if that's the same uh, and also as well whether there's any difference for doctors uh, I'm quite interested to see if there are any bias towards kind of maintaining doctor registrations particularly when they have GMC for example over other professions like nursing or occupational therapy or psychology um, the other thing that we um, talked about obviously for yourself, Julieta. You're, I mean, you're obviously a full-time academic. You're doing your research right now, so you kind of have stepped away, pretty much, from your clinical practice. Yes, but I also worked uh, for a couple of hours only for a research study in the university where I'm doing my PhD in East Anglia, and we do have it. I think it's this is really dependent on where you are. As what is your setting and how much you are uh, willing to to do i i do meet with my colleagues to discuss my, our participants clinically and even though i don't i'm not doing a clinical job there i'm not intervening in my participants life i do tend to you know recap and think what we are doing who these people are what is the clinical presentation yeah. what is the diagnosis type and i am also participating in an ot meeting that is led by the uh, norwich um, norfolk and suffolk uh, nhs trust so i think it's also a self-driven situation where you want to keep your skills by meeting other people and knowing what's going on and offering your knowledge from your research point of view and trying to change their practice in a way that you know in in some small uh, uh, way so i think it's it's it's, it's a very self-driven situation uh, as i say i also worked as an ot for a neuro rehab hospital on saturdays doing shifts so i try to keep you know that so clinical element up to date because uh, you know it's 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 really essential for your thinking when you do your PhD as well. So yeah. I think it's a self-driven yeah. situation. I make a point here. Yeah, because of course. It's about the peer consultation. So mm. uh, being part of clinical meetings, this is super relevant. I think it is another tool to keep your clinical skills uh, up to date in periods where I've been unable to see any patient. No, I I haven't been able to practice at all. I've 
really used this resource. So I made sure that I would pop in in clinical meetings, even if I had to Skype into the meetings, and you know at least observe the discussion between my colleagues, other colleagues who were actually practicing, because it's a way of of being present and not disengaged completely of what is going on in the real clinical world. So this is another mm-hmm. good thing. So you all left. I mean, fundamentally, you all left full-time clinical Mm -hmm. positions to be full-time academics. I mean, that academia has benefited from your clinical background, but you all left. And of course, there is that other way of working, which is you split your time. Um, Do any of you regret fully leaving clinical to work in academia? I mean, obviously, uh, personally, you may have had challenges along the way, which have caused you to question things. But uh, I mean, would you recommend that approach as opposed to you know, taking longer to do your PhD, but but doing clinical practice at the same time. Yes, I think from my point of view, if you are interested in research, I I would try. I would leave. Uh, I I am very happy with the decision that I made about leaving my clinical positions for a couple of years to try research and see whether I like it or not. And I am not missing my clinical time, I have to say, but I think it's a combination. At uh, at some point, I will have to make a combination because, you know, I do like seeing people and working with them and changing their life and supporting them. But I think uh, I would advise people to take this path uh, in order to have more options uh, and also to learn different things that can be then taken yeah, into I mean, the stressful actually to try and to try and split your time in that way I mean whether this this has been the right decision for you yeah I think it also depends on the area of your interest um, I left my full-time clinical position in Chile to came here for a more clinical research role but they think that the research is a very good in an important input for clinicians especially in dementia for example, if you want to see a good number of patients with, I don't know, posterior cortical atrophy or a typical forms of Alzheimer's disease, probably you won't get that in your clinical center. You have to go to a center where research is an important part yeah. of the of the of the work, because that's where you can see a, you know, a sufficient number of patients with those kind of pathologies, and you can get a clinical flavor of what they pre- how they present. So I think research is a very powerful experience for clinicians. And and so given, I think you've all suggested that you intend to return to full-time clinical practice? Um, That's not my intention at the moment. so what I would like to do in the future is to combine my research career and my clinical career. So I really love being a clinician. And my identity is pretty much anchored on, on me being a clinician. So when I think about myself, I think about um, a clinician who does research. Oh, so you've got an interesting one because there's, there's not a lot of precedent for that, right? Somebody who tries to find the balance between the two. I mean, you know, maintaining that long term research career whilst also doing clinical work in your, particularly in your field. Yes. So, so yeah, you're a bit of first. Since I will, I will have to be very creative. <laughs> <laughs> and Julietta? 
Yeah, well, I, I, I don't close any door, to be honest. Uh, I, I, as, as Aida, I love my clinical experience and my work, and I love my patients, my, the carers, and all what comes with this field. Uh, but I also love doing research, so I kind of see myself trying to be creative and combine and have a, like a combination of things uh, to make me feel motivated and yeah. to try to find really solutions by doing research. So I think it's trying to mix both both of them in future. I don't know how, but I am open to that. <laughs> and Dan, you've already said, I mean, you're going to go back and set up your own research institute, right? <laughs> well, I, I'll be combining differently. I mean, um, that's a big part of what I wanted to do here. So to have this experience in clinical centers where research is a very important part of the, their, their job. And for next year, uh, of course, I'll be resuming my clinical work in Chile, but I'm also applying for funds for this little research center just for, for to start with my good research project, yes. So at the start we introduced this as saying it was about clinical skills but also about identity. You've all been out of clinical, full-time clinical practice for quite a while now. Would you, I, I'm, I'm not even going to ask you a question about whether you'll still identify as clinicians because you're all just going to say yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 so you'd also, so, but how long before that kind of starts to fade away? How long before you're away from the front line of properly practicing that, you know, that kind of stressed environment that we know healthcare is is like right now before you stop really feeling like a clinician and you start to feel like an academic that's dabbling in clinical work? I'm going to be unkind there, but I'm going to I'm I'm being deliberately provocative in that question. What do you For think? Me, this has been my worst nightmare because I've lived in this crisis, you know, trying to balance the walls. And I've always feared that I will lose my clinical skills and then what will become of me because my, it's so deeply rooted in my identity that I'm a clinician. But I think that it, it is, you have to make peace with the situation and also focus on the positives because you are you have a double qualification and that's awesome. And I think that it is worth making the effort of trying to balance both and also adjusting expectations. So you don't need to become the most famous researcher ever in order to be able to be a a good quality researcher and continue conducting research. And and when it comes to to your clinical practice, it's the same. You need to adjust what you are able to do. Maybe you are not able to develop the complexity of a clinic or or a service that you would always dream, but you can still see patients, you can still see the best, uh, become the best version of yourself. So there are ways around it, but you need to uh, make peace with the situation and also appreciate that the huge privilege that is being both a clinician and a researcher and not being focused on the conflict as I've done a lot in the past. It's, yeah, it's like forging a bit of a new identity, mm-hmm. isn't it? That's that, that, that in-between role. So obviously some of our listeners will be full-time clinicians right now who are just starting, either trying to balance their time in, in academic studies alongside their clinical work or, you know, thinking about leaving full-time. What, what advice would you give to anybody um, in terms of how they maintain their clinical identity and skills in in leaving for full-time academia? What what advice would you, what kind of mindset, what, what things should they think about in advance? I'm, I'm going to come to 
Juliet at first. I'm seeing you're staring off into you're thinking yeah, about the I'm answer really there. About it because I I very much think this is a personal thing about identifying yourself as a clinician. So I I don't have a, a particular advice to give people. I think it's more about what you are looking for by doing research. What is your motivation that will maybe define what you need to do in order to uh, continue being a clinician as well. So my motivation for doing research is to try to find new things to change people's lives. So in that in that way, I am trying to maybe uh, create things for other occupational therapists who can take my work into the clinical practice. So I can see that as a way of, you know, contributing and continuing with my clinical experience and contribution. So I I don't have like a specific advice in this matter. And and I suppose that way your day-to-day research activity keeps you in that environment. I think environment's a key thing here, isn't it? If you're still working with the same kinds of people you're still in touch with the same patients that can help you kind of keep in that space because it's important to keep in touch otherwise what you don't want to do is to to go off into academic studies thinking you know how things work and then coming back five years and we know healthcare changes so rapidly that you come back five years and find everything's changed yes and also can i say something else about trying to disseminate your results within your field as well because uh, we work as very much dementia researchers but if we go to our for example in my case occupational therapist uh, congresses or conferences then I can you know promote what I'm doing in my own uh, area of expertise rather than only dementia focused Mm -hmm. you know conferences. So conferences are good as well particularly if you don't focus just on the research conferences you're still going to the, the national conferences from the clinical ones yeah so that's a, that's a way of you know trying to keep your clinic clinical approach and i suppose you've got an extra challenge here daniel because you're not even in the same country so you're trying to keep in touch not just with your your profession but also trying to keep in touch with a with a country that's that's developing and moving on constantly as well does that present a whole different challenge yeah it's a, it's an extra challenge because um you know, in, in Chile, my country, we are just starting with uh, the dementia care and research. So it's an extra challenge because I have to persuade people um, and the healthcare system to recognize how important research is for clinicians and for the clinical practice. Yeah. And as Julieta said, um, it depends on your motivation. I think I feel myself as a clinician because the patient and the person is in the center of my of my job. So my main interest is how all research affects people's life. And I think that's a key part of feeling yourself as a clinician. But of course, it's an extra challenge to combine these worlds. And that's why we have this big gap between the clinical world and research. That's still the reality yeah. in many places. Thank yeah. you. Ida, did you have anything finally you wanted to add to that? Or any final points? like to make yes i would like to to uh, send this message for people who may be in the same situation or considering uh, clinicians who are considering a career in research focus on the positives because it is an amazing thing to be a clinician and also a researcher and there are um, far more positive things than negative so sometimes you will just need to be more creative or flexible or we, you will have to work on making peace with conflicts but it's, it's totally worth it
Fantastic. So, I mean, for, for me, the summary to, to, to take away from this is, is I think um, nobody should be afraid to leave full-time clinical practice to, to embark on some, some academic work, whether that's full-time PhD for three years or, or, or longer, um, if you try to split your time between the two. But you definitely shouldn't be afraid. There are ways that you can maintain your clinical identity and keep your practice up to date. Don't rely upon your organisation supporting you to go on courses and maintain your registration. It might be that self-driven, but as I said, do tweet us if you have a different view on that. Um, but there's ways, and, and you get that through attending conferences, staying in that environment where you are, um, particularly if you don't go bury your head in a library for five years and, and never come out again. But do try to do that. And if there are opportunities to... Well, potentially struggling students always want to earn extra cash on the side anyway, right? Early career researchers. I mean, trying to do some shifts in your old profession is one way of, of doing that as well, keeping in touch with colleagues um, and, and maintaining touch in where you can, and that way you'll start to develop a new identity that's, that's not ground, you know, that has this grounding in clinical work but, but allows you to probably become a better version of yourself with this learning and giving back. What I've taken away is all three of you are really keen that the the lessons and the research you've done over the last few years gives back to the community and benefits the the clinical people that, that are still there working in that full-time practice. And so trying to... And I feel like most cl uh, academics with a clinical background probably do build that that rooting into their research that there will be a mechanism for... For, for feeding back and disseminating and implementing the research that they're doing. Thank you ever so much. This has been fascinating. I hope it does inspire people. All three of our panellists today are all on Twitter. Um, we've also started to have a fortnightly WhatsApp group chat uh, to reflect upon what you've heard in this podcast. Um, our panellists, um, uh, some if not all of them, will be involved in that discussion as well, so you can post questions to them in that, in that group chat. Um, if you visit our Twitter feed um, at dem underscore researcher or visit our website and click on the top page and go to the Ask an Expert. You'll find details on how to, to get involved in our WhatsApp group. Um, so, yeah, if any of our listeners have anything to add to this topic, please do use the hashtag ECR Dementia. Profiles as well are also available on all of our panellists on the website and a transcript of this podcast will be available for those who, who might have had difficulty listening to it. Obviously, they can't listen to that to tell them, but please do. If you have colleagues who you think might uh, like to, um, to benefit from this podcast, please do point them to the website where you'll find a transcript. Um, finally, please remember to subscribe review and um, leave messages for us on our podcast you can find it on itunes spotify podbean soundcloud everywhere and i think you can even ask your smart speaker to play the dementia researcher podcast and alexa or siri or what's the google one i don't know that one they will all do that uh, and do visit our website which is packed full of all kinds of uh, research uh, advertisements funding opportunities and uh blogs as well and posts talking about how people are balancing their time between academia and clinical work. Thank you very much to all of our pandas, Julieta, Daniel, 
either. Thank you very much for joining us again. I, if any of you also, I, I don't quite know the timing of this, but if any of you, our listeners, speak Spanish, all three of our panelists have also recorded uh, a podcast for us uh, in the Spanish language, which will be either have already come out or be coming out. <laughs> Thank you very much again, everybody. Thank you. And uh, we'll look forward to hearing from you again. Brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world. <laughs>